Hello, I hope you're doing well and staying safe and healthy. My name is Brandy Douglas. Uh, I am the host of the Got Work To Do podcast, and we're happy to be continuing the podcast even in the time of pandemic. And my guest and I today are coming to you from our home. So while it'd be wonderful to be together um, in the same space, I'm very thankful that technology exists in this time. So speaking of guests, um, today with me, I have Dr. Allison davis Whiteice, who is the Director of Community Diversity Relations in the Office of Institutional Diversity, and Dr. Larry Roper, who is Professor in the School of Language, Culture, and Society, and many other titles. I will give them both a chance to do a better introduction than I do with the CAN standard version. So if we want to start with Allison, if you would introduce yourself. Yes, sure. My name is Allison Davis White Eyes. Um, my Indian name is Nato Tsutsukuaki. I'm the oldest of three children. I grew up in an extended family household when I was young with my siblings, my parents, my aunt, and my grandparents. Um, I'm really happy to be here today and to share time with both uh, Larry and Brandy. And if I remember correctly, you have family in Oklahoma? Yes, I do. Yeah, Allison and I have had chats. <laughs> <laughs> Larry, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Yes, I'm Larry Roper. Um, and as Brandy said, I'm a professor in the School of Language, Culture, and Society, where I coordinate the master's program in college student services administration and the undergraduate social justice minor. Um, I also served here for 19 years as the vice provost for student affairs, uh, originally from Akron, Ohio. I'm the middle of seven children, and like Allison, I grew up in an extended family household. Um, spent most of my formative years in a bed, a two-bedroom house with 15 other individuals, oh. um, and a border. <laughs> <laughs> wow, so that's, that's me. I, your lives are amazing. I can't imagine. <laughs> formative years being that that amazing. Um, so before we get started, just for the viewers to know, viewers, listeners to know, Allison and Larry have been very uh, integral in my time at Oregon State. I met both of them when they were in previous roles when I first started, mm -hmm. but uh, these two individuals, I'm very excited to, that we we're able to do the podcast together because of um, the amazing work that they have done, not only at Oregon State, but even before um, they happen to, to bless this university. So to begin, uh, if you want to talk a little bit about how long you've been at Oregon State and where you specifically started at the university, like what department or office, and you can start with Larry. Okay, so I started, so I came to OSU in 1995. Um, as the um, Vice Provost for Student Affairs and a Professor of Ethnic Studies at the time. Um, and um, as I said, served in that position until 2014. Um, also during that time, I served an 18 month stint as the Interim Dean of the College of Liberal Arts. And then I moved over to the School of Language, Culture and Society in 2014. I didn't know you were an Interim Dean. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Does that sound like, was that, I want to say, was that fun? I don't know if being an interim anything is fun, but. Having the opportunity to lead from different spaces on campus is, um, it's, it's, you know, there's, there's a richness to, I think, every leadership role. Uh, you just have to look for it. 
um, and I certainly uh, just really cherish the time that I have with colleagues and the chance to develop new relationship networks um, in the College of Liberal Arts. Very cool. Allison, what about you? So I came to Oregon State University in January 2000. I remember it very distinctly as a very snowy day, my first day at OSU. I came with a lot of excitement. My previous role was an assistant director of admissions from the University of Oregon, and I came to work in the Division of Student Affairs under the mentorship and leadership of Larry Roper, who I'd heard so much about. Um, I started off as a coordinator of Indian education, uh, pursued my PhD um, at Oregon State University, later became director of intercultural student services and worked with a team of scholars from uh, across the nation to really sort of rethink and reimagine um, student diversity efforts to meet the more, I would say, global and intersectional needs of our students. And so we went through um, quite the process of reorganizing the student affairs efforts at that time. And then later I became assistant vice provost of student affairs and director of diversity and cultural engagement, which actually was the umbrella organization to help kind of bring the uh, various cultural centers into a constellation of, of, uh, of a broader if you will, diverse community. And at that time, if you recall, we even were able to add uh, Etihad as okay. our newest cultural resource center into that constellation of just amazing minds and amazing communities. And so um, since that time, um, I uh, moved into this new role in the new Office of Institutional Diversity, which is charged with expanding diversity efforts, which quite frankly started in the Division of Student Affairs uh, to really be integrated throughout our campus community. And so my role um, in the new Office of Institutional Diversity is more of an external facing role, but an external facing role that builds and bridges external communities into and with the university community. And I think it's a very unique role. I have learned a lot. Um, and, it, and it really makes me consider what it means to be a civically engaged anchor institution in and with community, so. Yes, <laughs> like, I like listening and thinking about all the ways that you have started doing those processes and across the state and, mm -hmm. and being sure that we're doing both of those things. And you're right, um, at least from my point of view, I agree that uh, the diversity work and efforts have really um, started, foundationally started within the Division of Student Affairs. And this leads to my next question of when you both began at Oregon State, what was the everyday language of diversity, um, equity and inclusion? What, um, was it, is it different now than it was then? Like, was it, was it spoken every day? Like, what was diversity efforts like when you both, I mean, you have a five-year difference, but what was it like when you first got here? I think that there's, um, it's really interesting because you think about the language, but what I think is that there were conversations, but they were splintered, um, disconnected, um, not always well-informed, um, and not always out loud. Mm. <laughs> so there were um, people who used the language of minority and multicultural and diversity. Those were sort of the the words of the trade 
um, at, at the time. Uh, but the efforts um, were far from being connected or integrated. Um, and I think that there was a, sort of a begrudging nod to the need for um, efforts in that direction led mostly by the, the Office of Multicultural Affairs. Um, but the, a very heavy burden um, fell there. And so as a result, many leaders across the campus, particularly those who you expected to be leaders, um, those in senior leadership roles, academic dean roles, and department head roles, um, were largely outside of those conversations. And when they were engaged, there was a high level of discomfort. Yeah. That was my, my perception at, at the time. Mm -hmm. What would you add to that, Allison? Um, I would add that, you know, first I came five years later um, from Larry. So he was there to sort of get a, a good feel for the landscape prior to my arrival. I think when I came to OSU, my experience was that the diversity conversations at the Oregon State University campus, believe it or not, were further ahead and further along than they were at the other sister campuses. And I happened to come from the University of Oregon, which at that time was not even having those kinds of conversations. So my arrival to OSU was one of, I want to be on this campus because I am excited for the opportunity to be in an environment where at least some pockets, and I do agree with Larry, it was fractured and there were some pockets, but there were some pockets <laughs> that were having that conversation. Um, was it met begrudgingly? Yes, I would say so. Were there episodes of benign neglect? Yes, I would say so. But I think there were individuals who were committed and individuals who were trying to raise the conversation and give it a higher resolution and support one another in this work. So my arrival was one that uh, I came with a sense of hope and a sense of optimism. And I think what I was looking for was a landing place where there was a community that at least was willing to raise up those kinds of questions. Absolutely. So let me jump in on that because that, that's a really, really important um, acknowledgement. Uh, you know, you had, when I introduced myself, I didn't say that one of the things that I did was when I got invited to interview for the Vice Provost for Student Affairs job at OSU, I came three days early and spent three days in the community without members of the search committee or anybody knowing that I was there because I wanted to get a sense of the quality of life and whether or not I would like living here before I made a decision about whether I would feel good working here. And after three days, I visited the campus, went to you know, surrounding coffee shops, sat around, and I, at the end of those three days, I concluded, I can live here. I can make a life here. And that was largely because as I began to interact with people and just to talk to people about things, I got a sense of decency and a sense of commitment to go in the right direction, even if the strategies and the approaches weren't clear. clear. But then also when I looked at some, some of the general design features of the culture, the cultural centers, um, the cultural meal events programs, those things that were in place, showed that there was sort of ongoing performance 
of multicultural and cultural engagement mm -hmm. that was beyond what I had seen at many other institutions at which I had been before. So I felt like in a sense when people were sort of evaluating you know, a house and just to say, while it needs some work, it's got really good bones. Mm -hmm. Well, the university, while it needed some work, had really good bones. And I think it's that, that and I think that, that sort of those skeletal features of the university are in place and they're still in really good shape. And the things that both of you have mentioned, I'm, I'm thinking through my, my currently my eight years here and it's like, oh, some of those things are still a little present. I would say the begrudgingness has slowly gone away a little bit. I think, um, I think that's the, the help of, of what we have in place now, but the small pockets piece and the community piece has been pretty consistent and pretty constant, yeah. um, which, is, which is good because that means that the, um, the institutional memory has, has sustained over time. Mm -hmm. um, and thinking about that, I talk about this with students all the time because anytime they um, start something, the institutional memory tends to leave it, um, leave with them. And I, it's different for faculty and staff in some ways. So when you both started, what, who were the ones uh, doing this, doing diversity uh, work um, that you observed, learned from? Um, I know Larry being one of them, probably for you, Alice, if, if there are other folks as well who were, who, were, who were the leaders of these communities, these small pockets that were leading that charge. Well, maybe I'll jump in since I came a little bit later and you're absolutely right. I think for me coming to Oregon State University was like getting a drink of water in a desert. It was an opportunity to learn what it feels like to be in an organization that values the humanity of others and creates a sense of community, something deeper than, than just uh, learning outcomes, okay? And I found that that is what gave me life. And I also learned a good deal about what it means to build relationships and community with my colleagues. And I think that was the strength of the Division of Student Affairs. I think that under Larry's leadership, that was sort of the driving force, was really recognizing our shared humanity and being able to model that and engage that with our students and quite frankly, even with faculty and beyond. Mm -hmm. So I felt I got a lot of opportunity to be on a journey and I, and I really called it a journey with this division and our allied colleagues in the academic units. And there were, there were a lot of wonderful people. We had Angelo Gomez. Uh, we had the EOP staff was a part of this. Uh, we were all working towards something together. But what I want to emphasize is that it was anchored and rooted in acknowledging and recognizing our shared humanity, even through times of difficulty. And I think for me, that was really the richness of the experience that I feel so blessed and fortunate to have, because quite frankly, that does that that is a rare occurrence in many organizations. And I think what um, what Allison's noting, and I think that it's probably at the root of you know that you know the, the you know we've got work to do, mm -hmm. is that it's a it's it, it is a human journey, mm -hmm. and it's what are we doing to help people to not just chart the course but to sustain themselves so that when they come out on the, at the end of that journey, um, there's a sense of wholeness. Um, that this is not just um, task achievement. 
but this is uh, a, a deep commitment to a way of being and a design for living that we're attempting to create. And so in some ways you're sort of this constant sort of belief in the unseen is that we're creating a world that we've yet to live in, but yet that we think is desirable for us to live in. And so we have to figure out, so how do we attend to the condition of those who are on that journey with us and not diminish them so that they get to the other end and they're broken. Right. But then other people are feeling more, more restored and, and more nurtured and more sustained that it can't be that there are winners and losers in the process, which is why the, the hard work is oftentimes those who we say, you know, we might call it, call it resistance, but more is that their life has either led them to a different place or started them at a different place than it has some others. And so one of the core pieces for us was a shared learning agenda that we had with each other about how do we grow in our relationship with each other and grow in our capacity to lead with others in relation to that. And so, you know, we got here, as Allison said, you know, there are people who were doing some of the heavy lifting. Again, I just go back to Phyllis Lee. I think Phyllis Lee was doing some tremendous heavy lifting um, for this. And oftentimes, you know, by herself, but she was tireless. Um, I mean, I'm sure she was fatigued, but, but she, she, she stayed in it. Um, you know, folks in EOP who had been in it. Um, and again, working from a different place, right, because they were working for a particular audience, but yet feeling like they were working against structures that weren't always designed around them. But the thing that I found who was in there was that uh, the constant theme in this was, was student voice and, and student activism and not always um, confrontational activism. Mm -hmm. It's like they would create incidents in the lives of administrators by sometimes they would sit in, but other times they would just come and say, we got a problem and what are we gonna do about this? And so, the, the group that created the, what was the minority education office mm -hmm. is a group called TEAM, right? Together everyone accomplishes more. And they really pushed for us to have more than just the Indian education office. Mm -hmm. So they were the ones that, that created the, the work. And so we set up a process following again, our student affairs model that we follow the energy of convening groups to come together and empowering students to create the designs for the offices and the designs for the, the designs for the program. Um, you think about how we came up with um, the LGBT uh, resource um, uh, center. Um, you know, again, a group of students were concerned um, in that regard. And so they came to me and I said, well, let's just meet. We'll have a conversation. We'll figure out what it is. And at the end of a couple of days of talking and meeting and design, we created we created the office and created a position for the office. Human Services Resource Center evolved in this, through the same kind of process of us just hearing student voices. And this gets at your point of coalitions, mm -hmm. right? It's like incidents create opportunities for relationships and action. And it's like, how do we translate those requests? You know, again, you can hear them as a request, as a complaint, or you can hear it as a request. How do you? translate those, those requests into action that achieve what you think you, what you articulate as those things that you say you value. So it's like you encounter a, a, a situation that can seem chaotic, but 
clear values can give form to that chaos. Right. And there's also, I mean, I would say this was students now, but I know that was students who helped created those centers, those pieces of uh, that we are now just know as is there's relationships there. <clears throat> there are relationships that are already formed that they could be able to come to you and be like, hey, we have a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, or relationships to know that we're like, we're going to be sitting in, we're going to have this sit in for a day, a week, whatever. Um, and you, you know about it and you see that as an opportunity mm-hmm. um, for collaboration and not um, this, this complaint piece. There has to be some relationship building there. And that goes to the point of um, the things that we're building to create a, the life that we want. I, I think about social justice, the def- definition um, that I've always worked with, which is that it's a, a process, vision, and a goal. Like you, it's mm-hmm. all three of those things, mm-hmm. um, and they are ever changing. You don't. You hit one goal, and you're like, "All right, what's the next process and vision to reach the next goal?" Like it's never. Um, I don't want to say it's never ending because at some point, I always hope that there's an end date for for uh, the work that that we do. But at the same time, like knowing. Um, that that's the, that's the hope is to create a, a different life for everybody involved. You know, I think one of the critical things that Larry underscored is that when the students come, whether it be through activism or sit-ins, is that people need to reframe those sort of activities as not, not so much a, a confrontation, so much as an invitation mm-hmm. to have the conversation about things that matter. And I agree full-heartedly that that is what has made the difference, at least for Oregon State University, in advancing some of the goals and some of the changes that have been made because they have been made and informed by the students and their lived experience on campus. So I think reframing confrontation into an invitation to enter into a relationship with one another to seek solutions or to make needed change, or even just to identify that something here just isn't quite right. Sorry, there's a huge truck driving by and I didn't want it to, it, to um, meet your point. Uh, thinking about what you both just said, this is not a question that I asked, but it just has me thinking about the relationships we have with students right now mm-hmm. and the work that we're doing and where, um, it feels like there is a little bit of a difference and I think we're still taking it as an invitation, but I also think, uh, I'll speak for myself, um, haven't always done the best job of integrating student voices in a way that, that they would feel valued. Like when I hear you talking, Larry, I hear you talking about them helping with the design of the multicultural centers, them helping with the hiring of folks, you know, and that, um, that at least is not always the case in the work that we do currently. And so it's really given me pause in thinking about how can we create those coalitions a little bit better with students um, to allow, I mean, we have relationships with them, but I, what you're naming is something that I, I think we've fallen back on a little bit. I think one of the challenges that we have, um, and I think it's, it's a leadership issue broadly, is I think that it requires a certain level of humility that's required in order to do that, which means that when institutions are posed with problems, we have to at some point say, 
that whoever sees themselves as sort of the quote leader doesn't have to be the smartest one in the room. And that tolerance for ambiguity to say, I don't know what the right design is, but I know that there is a design that's accessible. Mm. Um, like one of my leaders, core leadership beliefs is that whenever there's chaos, there's an order waiting to be claimed. But we have to figure out what is the right order. Right. And it's, it's getting people together to think about that, that sort of gives some form to what that order for the future. And it has to be unique to each culture, to each institution. So I don't, I don't really like this sort of plug and play kind of stuff like, why well, did this at this school? So I'm just gonna do this here. This. Because yeah. it doesn't take the particular DNA of the place where you're trying to do it, do that new thing into account. It's assuming that it has the same feature as the, the previous place or that other place that you're borrowing it from. And so when we are confronted with various challenges or issues, like, okay, so how should the offices be designed? Now, I know how I would design them, and I can sit down and do that, and then just deliver it to somebody and then say, okay, give me your feedback. Well, that sets up a very different dynamic than you say, let's just start from the beginning and say, so what is, what should be the, the core values around the office should be designed? What do you think are some important deliverables that they should give? I mean, you, it takes more time. Right. But when you get to the end, there's much less, less dispute about how you got to where you are and whose voices are included in it. Same thing with the cultural centers. When we redesigned the cultural centers, again, convened groups for each of the cultures that met, that worked with the architects, that took a lot more time, but they were really clear about the values and that they were going to serve the needs of the various communities in terms of, in terms of doing that. So I just think that the, um, the patience and the humility and the willing to say, this is time intensive work. And there is no easy or quick way to get to the outcomes that we say we want. Right. It makes me think through um, what themes have always just kind of resurged again and again when you're working with students and faculty and staff of themes of issues, of concerns um, that we either hadn't seen this path and, oh, this is how it's coming up again, or we just haven't had the right order um, to, to, to put in, you know, to connect with the chaos that's coming up. Are there themes, does that make sense? Are there themes that have, have come up through your time at Oregon State that just continue to research? You know, I, I'd like to jump in on that one and say the two themes that I'm, I am surprised are still coming up are the two themes of community and belonging. And I think if we were to parse out, a, you know, I know it's a national discussion, but when we think about community and belonging, that really applies to this work, the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so what it's saying is we still have not quite addressed some of those issues. And I think I want to kind of tie that into uh, Larry's earlier comment about engaging student voice engaging community because he is right absolutely right on when he says it takes humility to do that it takes time it takes patience it's messy it takes vulnerability it takes connection and it takes forgiveness and by forgiveness i mean the ability to forgive oneself for making mistakes for not knowing for admitting you don't know 
and forgiveness of others when maybe that direction isn't exactly what you yourself had in mind. Mm -hmm. And finding a way to stay in that conversation with people and not give up on them. So I, I think for me at least, and, and I'm sure Larry will definitely add to this, the, the fact that community and belonging is still coming up in our student assessments is the two things that people struggle with on our campus is that somehow we have missed to a certain degree how to continue to be and engage in community with one another. Yeah, the, the three, th there are three themes that for me come up in addition to the ones that, that Allison, um, Allison cited. Um, I think uh, intentional dialogue. Um, so we've got to be really intentional about the conversations that we're having. I think we need um, foundational values. So there needs to be a core set of values that you always go back to in decision making, problem solving and saying, and how does doing this reinforce that we are who we say we are, or that we're living in commitment to what we say we're committed to. And then the last thing I would say is caring relationships. That is very difficult to do the kind of cultural change, human intensive work without caring about the people with whom you're involved in relationships. Because one of the things that I find that we have to do constantly is to help others to understand that, that they don't have an ability to make sense out of. And it's very difficult to teach somebody if they don't get the sense that you care about them. Mm -hmm. I often joke sometimes with people and say, what if you had a supervisor who came to you and said, you know, I don't care for you very much, but let me give you some advice that I think would be very helpful for you. Yeah. It, it's like we can't be working with colleagues and treat them in ways that suggest that we don't care about them very much, yet we be trying to convince them, we're trying to get them to change for their own good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, that, 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 that just doesn't work. And so I just think that, the, the, you know, having the, at the end to say, we've got to care about each other, even when we're disagreeing even if we're coming from different places. And that's such a hard, um, I use that in quotes, thing to do right now because of the nature of, of specifically the United States um, and where we're at now. This, what, the things you both are naming remind me a lot of, uh, of intergroup dialogue mm -hmm. and just the, just the pieces around intergroup dialogue around humility and patience and time and um, having a genuine care for each other, knowing that there are times where you're going to disagree that because of the backgrounds and the lives that you've lived, then you're not always going to be on the same page around things. I can hear you. I can validate your existence just as much as you validate mine and um, be in community together. And that's, uh, it's difficult because I, at least I'll speak for myself. It's not something that I grew up with, even though I grew up with a very, um, traditional Baptist background. Uh, my father's a Baptist minister. I grew up in Oklahoma. But there are people who you just didn't agree with and therefore you just didn't talk to. You know, and so those pieces I did not learn until graduate school at UMass. Really how to really truly do, how to have that skill. And so it's not something that um, 
I've noticed that gets uh, taught a lot and people mm-hmm. learn how to do here. That's why I, I feel like Oregon State specifically is, has latched on to this type of, that type of communication dialogue specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, and in my opinion, we've latched onto it, but we still don't understand it mm-hmm. because the, the things that you have named, we have yet to, um, we have yet to really uh, solidify that, that those, those are the pieces of, that we bring to the table when we're doing a dialogue, when we're, mm-hmm. when we're thinking about humility, we're thinking about a power structure we're thinking about there are going to be uh, things that we've created that we thought were going to be great, but we really genuinely didn't have the folks in mind when we created it. Yeah. And when yeah. we hear that feedback, uh, when we hear their stories, uh, having the humility to understand that uh, it's, they're not wrong and that you, you, know, you may have had a good idea and this is how you can make it better. So hopefully, I think with enough practice, we'll get we'll get the dialogues right. I mean, we do them so much in the office right now, right now that I feel like it's just um, it's an, a practice piece. But the things that you both name really speak to the to the foundations of uh, dialogue. And I think that that's where the values come in because I think whether you all articulated it or not, some of the value that's at least one of the values that seem to be apparent in your work is just belief that people can be better in the world even if they haven't yet named that they they want to be. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. right. They're, they're still thinking it through. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was going to add to that, you know, um, I think some of the challenges that we face in this work, are, uh, I w- I'll start with just twofold, or one is the institutional culture. And we all know that institutions are systems, but they are systems created by humans. Therefore, mm. it stands to reason that they can be changed by human intervention. I know this is easier said than done because as with any system, there are always those who benefit or prosper from what is in place, knowingly or unknowingly. And a system becomes in fact embedded into the cultural fabric of a community Mm -hmm. and it takes on its own form, its own unspoken rules. Um, And I think this is where some of our problems lie. You know, these systems of inequity become what we refer to as the status quo. And it requires a good deal of self-awareness and perspective taking to really think deeply about these structures. And I think it brings the question up of how do we develop a sense of awareness and the capacity to deeply examine who is not benefiting or who is not even allowed to participate. So reflection in and of itself is only so good if there is action. I think also with reflection, it means that each and every one of us, and to Larry's point, have to be able to have the humility to look within ourselves and really examine our own biases because we are so quick, I think, in our current culture to call out other people Mm -hmm. or to say to others, your intent was disproportionate to the impact of your statement or action without reflecting on one's own impacts, right, on others. And I would say this has become more evident uh, in the past four years, especially with the political polarization of our country. Mm -hmm. This is not to say that there isn't bias or that there aren't issues that people do need to address, but it is our approach in understanding this and our approach in understanding each other that is really going to make the difference. We have to be able to address the issues and simultaneously 
see the other individual, even if we disagree with them, as a full human being capable of love and capable of us loving them despite the disagreements. And I, I know that, you know, if you're the daughter of a Baptist minister, minister you've heard the term redemption. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think that might sound a little judgmental, but I definitely feel that we have to have the ability to engage in, a, in an ethic or an aesthetic of forgiveness and to forgive, but to still offer correction, and that means self-correction as well, is an act of true love. And we need love if we are going to change anything. Mm -hmm. I, I was in a staff meeting once, and uh, I'll never forget this because I think for me it was a, a lesson in life and a lesson in learning what it means to be in community. And I was sharing with everyone that as a campus community, we need to have more grace and love. And at that point, one individual said, the problem with that is people don't all agree on what love is. And I found that to be a very interesting statement and thought about this for quite some time. And perhaps to some extent, that is probably true. People use this word when they are describing their ardent passions and fierce stance on issues of justice. But what happens in this case is that it gives love a dangerous concreteness, a scandalous concreteness, an illegal concreteness, in short, we end up causing pain to ourselves and to others. And so we need to think about perhaps replacing and reframing concrete love with tenderness. Mm. And that I think is one way we can begin to build our beloved community and bridge and coalesce. I'm gonna sit with this point for a minute. And I appreciate both of your points on this. I, as I'm listening to both of you, I'm thinking about tenderness and humility on for everyone, not just the ones mm -hmm. in power. That's correct. Whatever that looks like specifically in the in this institution or institutions systems, but for the folks who for everybody, because I think about it in in some of the dialogues we've had. Um, in some of the conversations I know I've had with both of you around what, what that could really do for, um, for a shift, what that could really say when you are looking at someone as a, as a whole person, you're seeing the humanity in, in them. That was something that came up with the Board of Trustees. They wanted to be able to connect with students, but they also wanted students to see them as humans. And that was just a fascinating statement to me when that, when that was named. It's just like, oh, they, they, we don't, we don't see you mm -hmm. as humans. You, you're seen yep. as this board yep. all the time. And, and I thought that was really powerful to, to see and realize um, that humility is, is, is something that we all need to, to be doing, not only for each other, but for ourselves as well. Mm -hmm. I hope this long word doesn't go back. Um, the last question I have before we get to the lightning round is something connected to what you just named, Allison, um, about systems and uh, specifically within an institution. You're right. Uh, I agree with you that it's a it's a human it's human made, and you would think that it could be uh, changed by the humans who who are in it. But a pandemic has helped a, 
a little bit with that with that changing of a system. The things that we are doing right now on our campuses um, in higher education um, are things that we have said in the past that we could not do. Working from home, um, allowing for access points to be more um, our access points to be more accessible were things that we that we were struggling with or, or having a barrier around doing. And now I've named this to a couple people. While I'm uh, sad that we are having to go through this, this uh, virus and, the, and these lives lost to see a structural change, we have an opening for a structural change. And so how would you, in just your imagining, just imagining what diversity, equity, inclusion work could look like while we are uh, in the midst of, a, of what could be a structural change? Like, what are the things that you're seeing coming up as we're going through this pandemic? Are, are there things that you hope for that we, could, uh, that we could see happen after this is over? You know, one of the things that's, um, as you said, Brandy, is exposing a lot about what we said wasn't possible, but it's also um, exposing some of our inadequacies. And I think if we take some of these broader social issues and just bring them back to the campus to think about health, um, access to health and well-being, and taking those as sort of broad constructs as opposed to just talking about just physical health, but to talk about the unevenness in the emotional health, the emotional care, to which people are exposed, um, the psychological health and the unevenness in the attention to the psychological needs of others. There certainly are the nourishment needs in terms of the food insecurity and there's the housing insecurity issues and there's the um, other kinds of economic vulnerabilities that are there. But for us to think about what does the construction of an environment that acknowledges the range of needs that our community possesses and the roles that we can play in providing those. And so if we think about equity and inclusion work, to really begin to think about that as being really about sort of emotional and psycho, having the emotional, psychological, as well as the interpersonal and the social dimensions of what it means to be an inclusive environment mm -hmm. and doing that broadly so this idea that do we think about the psychological and emotional needs that a trustee member might have and how we might structure things in ways that actually might deprive them of the access to humanity in a different way but maybe having for them the same impact or similar impact to the de deprivation of humanity or humane treatment that others might experience. Mm -hmm. It's like I leave these meetings feeling less than human. Well, right. who should leave any of experiences with us feeling less than human, right? Regardless of the role or the quality of the decision they made or our interpretation of those decisions or, or whatever. So I think it gives us a chance to really rethink the, the touch of our leadership. And there's a certain lightness that I think will be required of us to be increasingly sensitive to the way that we do things and how it lands on how it lands on different on different people. So again, this is a place where I think our innovation and our inventiveness is going to be very important because there's going to be OSU specific ways because of our unique 
cultural history about how do we go about doing that, knowing what we know about ourselves and the journey that we've been on um, and what possibilities are for that journey as we, as, as we go forward. So I just think that this is a really good time for us to do some, some deep introspection. I, 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 I'm sitting with what Larry has shared because I really think that captures the spirit of the moment that we're in. And I, I too strongly believe that this overarching narrative of what it means to be well and whole in our society is really important. You know, this COVID-19 crisis has laid bare before our eyes the raw inequities of our society. If your sight was obscured previously by who is privileged and who is not, you can no longer feign ignorance. Mm -hmm. It is, in fact, our glaring reality, and it is ours to solve. So, you know, in thinking to move us forward, I would like to suggest that we embrace um, the beauty within ourselves and our campus community. I think we have some really amazing people on this campus who are committed. And I think in order for us to move forward, it's gonna take four things, I think, four, four overarching themes that will help us reach what Larry is talking about, this idea of community wellness. And that's going to be love. And I think you heard a lot about love in this podcast from both of us. And that comes in many different forms, but really centering love for one another. Authenticity. I think being able to authentically not only say what the conditions are, but be able to authentically listen to what those conditions are, right? I think third, to have the courage to admit we don't know the courage to confront ambiguity, and the courage to stand back and let others share their lived experience and reality. And then the very last one is empathy. Having the ability to withhold your own bias and judgment and really reach out and deeply try and understand where someone is coming from how they got there and where we can go together to help resolve differences, make change and advance. You know, I'm probably gonna close with something that you all probably have heard, but there is a saying in among native people that we need to build a future that is not simply for the now, but is for seven generations to come. And I truly believe that is the charge of the work of people who do diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so, you know, in that spirit, I'm always reminded of one of the phrases from one of our great indigenous leaders, Tatanka Yotanka, who said, let us all put our minds and hearts together and see what kind of world we can build for our children. And I think that that statement is really the inspiring hope that we have to have. You have to lead, even in the middle of COVID-19, we still have to lead with hope and joy that being alive is a blessing and we need to take that and move forward. Yes, I'm trying to think of like, what, what else to say, y'all have 
this is how I knew this was going to be a great podcast with the two of you. I really appreciated everything you've you've named and said and reflecting on um, how we bring that, not only for myself in my own world, but also within the university's piece and setting, especially uh, out of the four you named, uh, empathy. Empathy is, is um, one of the hardest things to learn. <laughs> <laughs> and um, our campus is, is working through how to learn how to be an empathetic campus. And I, I definitely appreciate both of you um, very much for, for allowing us to talk today. I do want us to end on a, you're talking about hope and joy. I do want to end on a lighter note, <laughs> not to say that we haven't been light, because I do believe we have been. Uh, in the podcast, I usually do a nice little lightning round where normally I ask uh, questions of uh, folks of, um, that have either a similar activity or similar hobby, but this time it's like, no, I wanna ask some different type of questions that are um, just more me wanting to know more about you. So selfishly, this is just me wanting to know more about you and questions I've never asked you. So the first question is, is easy. <laughs> They're all easy, I promise. Um, is, is there an activity that you have discovered or rediscovered while being working from home and being in quarantine? Okay, I can jump in on that. Yes, yeah. I have discovered yeah. an activity that I, I never did before in my life until we went into a shelter in place. That is getting a tub of ice cream and eating it all by myself in front of the television, <laughs> watching a television show. I said, oh, this is what everybody's been talking about. This is great. Well, well my, my metabolism is not the same as Allison's, so I can't, I can't sit and eat a tub of ice cream at night um, walking, just the joy, the joy of walking. Yeah, I've rediscovered coloring. Um, I, when I was working in housing, it was probably, I mean, I've been stressed, but I would say the most stressful time was working in housing, and I think any of our housing colleagues know this, and it must have, I must have shown it quite uh, strongly because Teresita for my, uh, it was like an end of the year present, got me, uh, Teresita Alvarez Cortez, uh, got me coloring books <laughs> and, <laughs> and some markers. And she was just like, this is for you. Like, you know, this is something to do mm -hmm. when you're like to re release your stress. And I was yeah. like, oh, <laughs> thank really you. Good. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know I was, I was that stressed, but, um, I put it, you know, I've done some coloring and then put it away, but yeah, this, it's helped me focus and relax after a long day of looking at screens all day <laughs> to be able to do that. So, but I may have to try the tub of ice cream thing. I agree. My metabolism's <laughs> not there either, but I will yeah. totally do that. And I'm slowly getting back into walking. I had a, a real strong fear of going outside for a little bit, uh -huh, but now uh -huh. um, I've met some folks <laughs> who, who we do some social distance walking and it's been nice. So speaking of, I'm kind of riffing off of you watching television. Is there a guilty pleasure TV show that the two of you, like one of those TV shows is like your guilty pleasure? Uh, right now, I, I'm glued to Westworld, so yes. just so you know. <laughs> yes. You and I should talk. I haven't, yes. watched the, I haven't watched the last episode, but yeah, you and I should talk. I, I like um, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. Yes. I, I love John Oliver. Uh, mm -hmm. 
Those are my Sunday night shows. I wait till today usually to watch both of them. So yeah, we're mm-hmm. all three of us can have the conversation. I I love the format he's doing, John Oliver, yes. right now, um, mm-hmm. working working from home and being yes. real about that. Being so. real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's see. Oh, this is a good one. I really want to know your go your three. You can name three go to restaurants in Corvallis mm. oh. or Albany. Corvallis or Albany? Oh, Corvallis or Albany. Uh, well, okay. I like Castor. The Vault is good. That's in Albany. And um, although my partner isn't the biggest fan of Gathering Together Farms, I like Gathering Together Farms and the Dizzy Hen. So I gave you four. <laughs> I didn't give you three. I gave you four. Fair enough. I'm not going to like penalize you for it. <laughs> no, that would be... Um... Delama, probably um, Sam Station for breakfast. Mm-hmm. Allison there sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> when I go with my friend, my friend Dick, and then um, El Palenque. Mm-hmm. It's a oh. Mexican restaurant. It's on mm-hmm. Circle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah oh. but, you know, enchiladas with mole. Nice. <laughs> so continue with this food thing. I have like a couple more. Okay. Um, is there a signature dish that you cook that you are well known for? Oh, signature dish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I guess I'm really good at. I mean, I think it's good, and most people who have joined me think it's good. I make a uh, elk chili. Ooh. And I and I don't do the um, pre-packaged spices, I do it myself. And um, on rare occasions, maybe maybe once a year, if that, um, I make this homemade elk chili with fry bread. And I will say that I make the best fry bread I've ever tasted, so. Yes. Okay. Mm, yum, thank you. I, I, appreciate, I appreciate the next serving that I get. Right? Uh, <laughs> Uh, I would say um, eggplant parmesan. Nice. Yeah. I did not expect that. Yeah. I didn't expect either one of those. Uh, my dishes aren't, aren't savory. They're usually like a dessert or something. So it's usually like a peach cobbler or something. Oh, like I that. love peach so, cobbler. I love oh. it too. I mm. thought that's the one discovery thing I haven't done yet. That's take. a good peach cobbler <laughs> will be on my list to do next. That's, yeah. that's a good one. <laughs> So the last one I want to ask um, has to do with music. Uh, Alice and I have chatted about music mm-hmm. every once in a while. So is there an artist that people would surprise that you enjoy? So I know Brandy knows a little bit about the kind of music I like. I have an eclectic taste of music. So I would say I really love and enjoy and actually was going to go to a concert with um, Bridget uh, from College of Business um, to see Janelle Monet. So I just have to say, love Janelle Monet. Um, I also like classical music and I, I particularly like modern classical. So I like Philip Glass. Oh, Philip Glass is great. And he, uh, my favorite opera that he did is Akhenaten. And if you have not seen it, it is absolutely beautiful. The music is beautiful and the staging is beautiful, especially the production done by the Met. 
Um, and then um, ethnic music, I, I like all kinds of ethnic music, but I have to say, if you've never heard gamelan music mm -hmm. from Indonesia, that is absolutely beautiful. And I would recommend that you at least try. For me, I'm sort of an old school R&B kind of guy, but um, something that was surprising, well, my wife and I like going to Pink Martini. Yeah. Oh, that's surprising. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. My TV is great. Yeah. I'd say um, most folks don't realize how big into 90s country I am. <laughs> like, that's oh, what I grew up on. Oh, I grew up on Garth Brooks and Randy Travis and Travis Tritt and all the Reba McIntyre. And so it's rare to be from Oklahoma and not at least like one country song. Oh, that is true. That is true. But um, when you hear it out so often, you're like, oh, this isn't bad. This isn't half bad. And so, yeah, 90s country, I, I really have a strong uh, affinity for that most people don't, are very surprised. I think most people think country is not a great genre, but I love it. So, all right. Well, I've learned more about you and I appreciate um, you answering my questions and taking time out uh, to connect with, with me and with our listeners. And I, as a, just as, wanted to name. I appreciate both of you and I'm happy that the two of you have been in my life as long as you've been in my life, as long as I've been at Oregon State. And I'm very blessed to know both of you. Well, thank you. Well, the feeling thank is you. mutual. And thank you so much for, uh, for having us on the podcast and giving me a chance to, to see, the, see the both of you. Yes. Yes, <laughs> likewise. And definitely the feeling is mutual, Brandy. Definitely. I look forward to once this is pandemic is all over. Want to be back in the office with Allison and Larry. You and I have a have a date to go to Interzone. We need to have yes, breakfast. We must. We must. There we go. <laughs> uh, so until then, listeners, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. We'll be back in a couple weeks with um, some new guests, and this will be the quote unquote new normal until <laughs> until otherwise. So I've enjoyed it. You all have a great day. Okay, bye. Bye. Bye.